Well, good morning, everyone. All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here this morning. Um, as, as has already been said, I'm Cyril Chavis. I'm the RUF pastor at Howard University, and many of you all know me uh, from being the RUF pastor at Jackson State uh, for several years and also kind of interim staff and also intern um, and many other hats a, a, among us. And so it is good to be back. It's, it, it feels great to be uh, back at Redeemer, see many faces. And so I'm looking forward to catching up with many of you. Thank you for, for those who uh, just throughout the week have, have um, you know, reached out and came to the meet and greet. It's been a warm welcome. Uh, so let's dive into God's word. Uh, we are in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. And so Mark's gospel is a gospel account. That means it is a telling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, Mark is, you know, kind of in this part of the Bible, kind of, I don't know, seven-eighths of the way through. So just keep flipping. If you see, if you, if you see Matthew and Luke... You know, you, 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 you're in the ballpark. Those are also gospel accounts. And in this gospel account, uh, in, in our particular section, Jesus is teaching his disciples what it means to embrace a cross-shaped mission. What it means to embrace a cross-shaped mission. Uh, and so in our time this morning, we will see that Christ invites us to be great by becoming small. That's it. That's the whole sermon. Christ invites you to be great by becoming small. And so if you're new to uh, Christian worship gatherings, you might be wondering why we're opening up this old, uh, ancient, thick book and talking about it and explaining it. It's because we believe this is God's word. And uh, we believe when, when we explain it um, and apply it to our lives, that God is speaking to us. And so I'm going to read the, the scriptures. God is going to speak to us through his word. Uh, and I'll pray that uh, by the power of his spirit that... Uh, he gives me the strength to explain it and gives you the strength to believe it. All right, starting at verse 30, chapter 9, verse 30. They, meaning Jesus and his disciples, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. 
For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. I'm titling uh, this sermon and preaching from the subject, Stand, Serve God, and Be Small. Stand, serve God, and be small. Would you all pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be able to dig into your word. Lord, uh, your word is a demonstration of your goodness. Lord, you didn't want us to just be wandering around not knowing who you are or your desire for our lives or how we can enjoy you and glorify you. Lord, you gave us your word. You spoke to us. You told your people to preserve it, to hand it down from generation to generation, and that is what we have before us. Lord, I have two very precious things to you before me, your word and your people. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill me, that you would uh, fill this place. Holy Spirit, would your influence upon me increase in this moment? Would you soak me with power? Lord, would you soak me with conviction and boldness and humility? Lord, that I might explain your word that I might be your representative, appointed by you, to present Jesus to those who need him. God, I also pray that uh, by your spirit you would lead your people in this moment. Lord, I pray that you would open up hearts so that we might not only believe your word, but we might cherish your word. We would love it. Lord, and not only that, when, I pray this wouldn't just be an exercise um, uh, that, that we do sun, uh, uh, Sunday in and Sunday out. Lord, I pray that we would take this moment seriously. We would take all the, the songs, the prayers that we have just prayed. We would take all things seriously, Lord. We would give our attention, and we wouldn't just be good hearers of your word, Lord. We would be good doers of your word. I pray that, that we, we would leave here more fired up for your mission, more faithful followers who are sent out to love a world who needs you. Lord, we cannot do anything apart from you. And most of all, we cannot be transformed without you. So, Lord, we need you right now. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so I was recently uh, interviewing Professor K.A. Ellis. She's the director of the Edmondson Center for the Study of the Bible and Ethnicity at RTS Atlanta. Many of you know, uh, some of you know her by Karen Ellis, but... Uh, 
her, 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 her kind of uh, professional name is Professor K. A. Ellis, and um, she studies theological ethics and world Christianity, and she works really closely with Christians who are persecuted and who are on the margins of society. And she was telling me about a powerful opportunity that she had recently in serving Christians on the margins. There's a group of pastors in a closed country who wanted to send a letter of encouragement to a group of other Christians in another country. And she was telling me about how she was just uh, the person in between handing the letter and getting the letter translated to pass along this encouragement. Um, And this letter was, was in another country and it was sent across a language barrier. And reflecting on this opportunity, she said, I'm just the middleman standing in the middle of all these people doing really amazing things. All I have to do is just stand here and be small. And when she said that, I got goosebumps. I was like, I'm getting goosebumps now. I'm like, isn't that such a beautiful motto of just any life in our relationship with God? Lord, if I could just stand here and be small, (laughs) and you be great. That's a beautiful motto for all of ministry. In the beginning of every great ministry is a small person. The beginning of every great ministry is a person who's willing to be small for Jesus. But don't we oftentimes embrace the opposite posture in our ministries? Aren't we programmed to be the opposite in in our culture and in American society? We think bigger, faster, grander, greater, right? We say work harder because, you know, when, when, when your enemies uh, are, 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 are when, when you're sleeping, your enemies are working, right? And you got to be, be better than them. So when they're sleeping, you got to be working. You got to be greater than everybody else. And, and, and isn't our whole life set up to, to, to kind of uh, exalt ourselves and to be about self-promotion? These days, ministry is about, in many ways, those who are the most popular, those who can exalt themselves the most convincingly and the most persuasively. We want to be great by the world standards. And I think um, really myself and really the PCA, like our kind of the corner of the kingdom, uh, by, by many standards, we are generally affluent and educated. And we uh, have grown up with wanting to, to achieve and succeed and be, and be the greatest and be greater. And so I think this word is particularly uh, geared towards us and particularly every time uh, I preach it, it is geared towards me. And so our main point for our time today is Christ invites you to be great. Christ invites you to be great. But he invites you to be great in a different way than we oftentimes anticipate. Christ invites us to be great by being small. And we'll uh, see this in our passage. So we're first going to look at verses 33 through 37. We're kind of going to move quickly through this passage since, since it's a long one. So Christ first invites us to be grace, great by embracing the small. Somebody say embracing the small. He invites us to be great by embracing the small. So in our passage, it's actually a part of a larger section. It begins in Mark 8, 22, and it ends in Mark 10, 52, where Jesus is kind of giving his disciples three doses of teaching about his death and resurrection. And each time his disciples are a little confused. And so in this passage, we see that Jesus is kind of doing round two with his disciples. They're traveling through Galilee, which was kind of like the northern region of Palestine. And he's teaching them a second time about his own suffering and death. And as they're traveling, Jesus noticed that his disciples were arguing with each other. 
Now, I don't know what this was like, and, you know, maybe they were, you know, walking, or maybe they're riding on donkeys, or I, I don't know what it looked like, but, you know, can, can you imagine, you know, Jesus is with his disciples, and there's, and there's something tense going on, and there's bickering and arguing going on, and Jesus is like, what is going on among my crew? And so when they got to their kind of home base, Capernaum was their home base, ministry base, and, and they got to the house, Jesus was like, hey, what were y'all arguing about on the road? And the disciples were silent. Either they were too scared to tell Jesus or they were too embarrassed to tell Jesus because likely they already knew what Jesus was about. But Jesus knew exactly what they were arguing about. And uh, Mark kind of tells us in verses 33 through 34 uh, that the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. Now, I don't have a good idea of what this would have looked like, you know, like, like, like what was the rubric, you know, what was the grading scale, you know, where they're like, man, I've done so many exorcisms and how many have you done, right? Or maybe like, man, I've spent this amount of one-on-one time with Jesus. How, how much time have you spent with Jesus? Or maybe they, they were arguing about whose teaching was the greatest or who can a- attract the most crowds. Maybe they were arguing about who did the greatest healings. I don't know what they were arguing about. But whatever it was, they were obsessed with their own status and their own exaltation and their own glory in comparison to each other. They wanted to be greater than the next person. And Jesus sat down in the house, and he was trying to drive home what he was talking about while they were traveling. And he says this. He says in verse 35, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is a hard word for us. The way to become great is to become small. The greatest leader among them was the greatest servant among them. And so Jesus totally revamped their measuring system of what it meant to be great. I imagine they're they're sitting in in, in the house and the children are are off in the corner or they're off somewhere playing. And Jesus calls a child to himself and literally embraces a child in his arms. And Jesus says, this is what it means to be great. The apostles, just like Jesus did, were to embrace the small so like the parables, this is meant to impact us, is meant to you know, be, be, be more of it, leave us with an impression. We're not meant to dissect it. It's not allegory, but let's kind of just look at a couple things. You know, why a child? Uh, we could come up with all types of, I mean, ch- children have all types of great qualities and all types of uh, different things about them. But really, as we see, as we compare this with other gospel accounts, Jesus brings a child because a child was humble. Children, you know, it's a little different now, but children at that point in time, they were the most low in society. They were the smallest in society. They were the most humble. They were unimportant. It actually would have been kind of scandalous for Jesus to embrace a child in the midst of his apostles. It was, it might have even been one of the apostles' children. (laughs) Can you imagine telling a parent, in order to be great at your job, you must become like your child? Also, what does it mean to, re- to receive someone in Jesus' name? He says, to re- you, you must receive this child in my name. And, and to receive someone in Jesus' name uh, is to receive someone as a representative of Jesus. So Jesus is saying, in order to understand me, you must understand that I can use even the most unimportant, the most small and lowly of society to be my representatives. Jesus embraced the smallest as worthy of association with the greatest, and Jesus shows us by embracing this child. 
And then Jesus also challenges the apostles in this way. Check this out. The, the kind of like the, the way he um, talks about receiving the child, really it kind of mirrors what he told the apostles when he sent them out, when he commissioned them. In Matthew 10, 40, it, it records Jesus' words to his apostles whenever he sent them. Uh, he said, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The same language that Jesus used for the child he is the same language he used with his apostles. Jesus is artfully challenging the apostles' conception of what it even means to be an apostle. The great high and lofty apostles. Jesus is like, hey, you want to be a great apostle? Be a child. To be an apostle, you must embrace the persona of a child. To be small, unimportant, and lowly. To be an apostle is not only to be a representative of Jesus, it's to be a childlike representative of Jesus. But here's the funny thing. Mark's gospel account is actually really funny if you, if you read it slowly and just kind of make connections. You'd be like, man, the disciples were lost the whole time, except maybe, I don't even know if at the very end they, they really get it together, but uh, you know, the book of Acts kind of you know, uh, gives us some hope for them when the spirit falls down. Um, <laughs> but the disciples were exactly the kind of people who would have not embraced the small. Because here's the funny thing. Like literally like a, a chapter after this passage, you can go and, and look at it. It's in, uh, it, uh, I'm going to point it out to you because it's funny. In uh, chapter 10, starting at verse 13, after this speech that Jesus gives them, they rebuke people for bringing children to Jesus to bless. It's like, do y'all ever learn? <laughs> Didn't y'all already have this lesson? Even after this, this lecture, they were the kind of people who were too important to bring children to Jesus. Will they ever learn? And so this passage ought to shape the mission of the church on this Mission Sunday. As a church, we must ask the question in our community and in our city, what does it look like to serve Jesus and embrace the small? What does it look like to embrace the small? Are we embracing the small? What does it look like for our church to embrace the persona of the lowest social order, the, the most humble and most lowly of society? What does it look like for us to be small, unimportant, and lowly in our mission? But not, not only does Christ invite us to embrace the small, but Christ invites you to be great by uniting with the small. Somebody say, uniting with the small. He invites us to be great by uniting with the small. And we see this in verses 38 through 42. So, this is also hilarious. So in the midst of Jesus giving, you know, this, this live illustration, John speaks up for whatever reason. I don't know why. And John basically shares with Jesus that they had already done what they weren't supposed to do. He's basically like, hey, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop them. And like, that's all he says. It's like, what were you doing, John? I guess maybe he was confessing. Maybe he kind of just felt awkward and felt like he needed to fill in the silence or something. I don't know. But basically they said they stopped this person casting out demons because this person wasn't a part of the apostles' own crew. They said we stopped him because he wasn't following us. And it makes sense that the disciples would do this, right? Because they were obsessed with being great. And such an obsession, guess what this obsession does? And this is important. An obsession with being great brings about a competitive spirit. We oftentimes talk about like, oh, I'm a competitive person. Like, I like to win. I'm competitive. We got to be careful of that competitive spirit because it is really not of Christ, especially in ministry. When we, start to, when we start to see our ministries in competition with other people's ministries, 
It's a sign, and all, I remind myself of this all the time. I said, Cyril, are you trying to be great right now? Why are, you, why are you comparing? Why are you trying to be competitive? And this is also comical because literally 20 verses earlier, Mark tells us about a situation where the disciples tried to cast out a demon and failed. <laughs> so here you have the great apostles who had just failed out at casting out a demon, and here they're trying to stop this lowly, small disciple from succeeding at casting out a demon. The disciples were thinking the only way God should work is through us, through us, and if not through us, then through no one. And here Jesus encourages the disciples to embrace the small people who have united with Jesus and are doing works that aren't associated with the in crew, the in crowd, or the people who are the, the most close to Jesus. Jesus is like, stop it. Do not stop him. Unite with him. Unite with the small disciples. Cheer on their work. Help them out. See yourself as in alignment with them. Jesus is like, I will reward even the smallest act done for my glory. So here what the apostles had done is they, a lot of our disciples say cause to sin, uh, but really the, the word there is also, it can be translated as stumble. The disciples had caused one of Jesus' little ones to stumble. And so, that, and so this, this passage actually seems really disconnected. You're like, okay, he's talking about a child, and then he's talking about stumbling and tearing your eye out and cutting your hand off. What's going on here? And so Jesus really starts to um, talk about causing little ones to stumble, and he, and he starts to speak about judgment. Basically, he tells his disciples who were, who were given to making little ones stumble, he says, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So a millstone was a big circular stone that was used to grind grain. Jesus says it would be better that this was tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than you cause a little one to stumble. Y'all, that's, that's intense. This isn't teddy bear Jesus right here. This is, this is king riding on a horse, flames from the eyes, sore from the mouth of Jesus because he loves his little ones. He loves the small and he'll defend them. This would have been a, a, a gruesome drowning with no hope of rescue or proper burial. Jesus is saying that his judgment belongs to those who refuse to unite with the lowly and the small and unimportant. And family, is it possible that we could be like the disciples in some ways? Could it be possible that we have a competitive spirit towards other people and their gifts and their ministries and, and their position within the church or, or, or within our jobs or within the community? Could it be that we see our church as better than other churches and we're reformed and we have the pure theology and we're really about Jesus and we really know grace and we really would wish other churches would just stop it <laughs> and just shut down and join us? <laughs> Do we see other ministries as less than? In what ways are we refusing to unite with the small and celebrate the small? Are we seriously taking Jesus' warning to those who hinder the kingdom ministry of others? And y'all, I'm speaking on myself. I notice this in my own life, that, that oftentimes, you know, I'll, I'll be on campus and I'll be like, you know, we truly have grace. But isn't that such an ungracious way to speak about grace? <laughs> we're the ones who are truly sharing the gospel. We're the ones who really have Jesus. Isn't that such an un-Jesus-like way of talking about Jesus? 
Like, oh, those other ministries, man, they're just holding students back, man. They just ought to come and really be a part of us and, you know, get, you know, get, get some rehab, you know, for, with our group. And, you know, and that's such a great, I'm obsessed with being great when I think in that way. Jesus is like, be small. Be content with being small. Don't worry about all that. Just be small. Unite with the small. I ought to be, be cheering others on. We ought to have, what this happens is a spirit of competitiveness is replaced by a spirit of celebration. You want to know how to have a 24-7 party in your life? Learn how to celebrate with others. Learn how to celebrate the small victories of others. Learn how to celebrate people that aren't in your crew or in your clique. This is how we rejoice in ministry. Thirdly, Christ invites us to be great by sacrificing for the small. Somebody say sacrificing for the small. This is in verses 43 through 48. So in the next several verses, Christ then begins to use this like pretty gruesome language of cutting off your hand or cutting off your foot or tearing your eye out. If, if those things cause you to, to, to make others stumble. He is telling them to eradicate anything in their life that causes them to, quote, despise one of these little ones, to borrow Matthew's words. So even if it means becoming crippled or physically lame or blind, the disciples are to embrace smallness. And though I think Jesus here is using an exaggerated statement, I feel like, you know, we would all be missing limbs and hands if, you know, we took this like very literally. Uh, but the impact of his words should not miss us. Jesus is saying that being great according to Christ's standard, it requires great, great sacrifice. The kind of sacrifice that very few of us are willing to give. And the, Christ presents his disciples with two paths. Again, this is not teddy bear Jesus. He says they can either sacrifice for the sake of the small and receive life in the kingdom of God, or they can refuse to sacrifice for the sake of the small and receive fiery judgment. So family, this is a hard word, isn't it? This is a hard word. Jesus, you're talking about hell and fiery judgment and cutting off limbs. Mission requires sacrifice. Being a mission-minded church, being a mission-minded person, being a mission-minded family requires great sacrifice. And we must ask ourselves, what are the things in my life that I refuse to sacrifice in order to become small? What are the things in my life that I am refusing to sacrifice in order to associate with the small? Could it be our way of thinking? Could it be a friendship that we're not willing to sacrifice? Could it be that certain job? Could it be that certain, you know, prestigious group of people that we're associated with, that, that, that particular club, that particular fraternity or sorority that, 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 that we're so interested in associating with, but, you know, it really it wouldn't be great to associate with the small? Really, you know, uh, associating, Jesus associating with the small was not a great strategy to build a ministry. Hanging out with lepers and, and the crippled and the lame wasn't a great church planting strategy. <laughs> it wasn't a great reputation building strategy. And are we imitating the example of Jesus? What would it look like for us to embrace smallness for the sake of Christ's mission? And lastly, Christ invites us to be great by giving it all. Somebody say, giving it all. He invites us to be great by giving it all. And we see this in verses 49 through 50. So the last two verses of our passage are some of the hardest to interpret. I spent a long time just staring at these two verses. I'm like, so Jesus, we went from children to cutting off limbs 
to salt and fire. What's going on here? <laughs> he says this. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. How, how do you salt somebody with fire? I don't know. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So this is hard to interpret on multiple levels. It's hard to interpret like with the Greek grammar. And then not only that, but it's hard to interpret with the, like, uh, the, the manuscripts. And then not only that, even if those things weren't hard, it's just hard to interpret with the imagery. It's like, Jesus, how is salt connected with fire? And how, how is that connected with the rest of the passage? Um, but what I believe Christ is saying here is he's switching um, from one place in Jerusalem to another. Now, your passage in, in the previous section, it talks about, Christ talks about hell. Um, Christ actually never said, used the word hell. That's, that's something that we, tra- that, that's a translation we use to help us out um, in, in our current context. But what Christ said was Gehenna. Now, Gehenna uh, was a place outside of Jerusalem. And in the Bible, it was associated with fiery destruction from God fiery judgment from God. So Christ says, hey, do not cause one of these little ones to stumble, because if not, you will face Gehenna. But then he starts to talk about uh, salt. I think he's moving from Gehenna, a valley outside of Jerusalem, and he's moving to the temple inside of Jerusalem to the altar. Now, in the Old Testament, oftentimes when they would offer a sacrifice to God, they would season it for God. Isn't that interesting? They would, they would season it with salt as they were offering it up to God. And so I think what, what, what Christ is, is saying here is that as a Christian, really as anybody, there is no way to escape fire. Did y'all know that? There's no way to escape Christ's fire. You either face a fire that separates you from God or a fire that offers you up to God as a living sacrifice. A fire that brings down the great or a fire that lifts up the small as a pleasing aroma to God. You are to be salted to be a sacrifice on the altar. Just like salt was used to prepare sacrifices, the disciples are to embrace smallness as their seasoning. And then in verse 50, Christ asks really what I think is a powerful rhetorical question, and I stared at this one for a long time as well. He basically says, how can salt be, essentially he says, how can salt be salted when it's lost its saltiness? (laughs) Essentially saying, how can seasoning be seasoned when it's lost its seasoning, right? And the answer is there's no way. Seasoning cannot season itself. You can't put salt on on salt to re-salt salt. And so Jesus is urging the disciples like salt cannot be anything other than salt. Disciples cannot be anything other than small. To be a great disciple is an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a great disciple. There's only small disciples. And Jesus is telling them when, when, when you've lost your smallness, it's like, it's like salt that's lost its saltiness. What are you good for? It's a hard word, y'all. And so what does this mean? On this Mission Sunday, Christ is inviting us to adopt a missionary mindset that embraces smallness. A missionary mindset is a small mindset, one that is willing to embrace the small, to unite with the small, to sacrifice for the small, and to give it all. 
When we are tempted, and this happens, we, we must remember this, when we are tempted only to engage in the mission of God when it means serving those who you deem as great. Only when it means serving when you can be noticed. It means uh, 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 serving even um, when you are tempted to only do it when it can be put on Instagram or Facebook. It means serving along, uh, 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 it, 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 it means being small when we're tempted to serve only when it's comfortable. When we're tempted to serve only when it means that you get to keep your life as it now stands. Here in our own city and across the world, across the seas. And the very last thing that Jesus tells his disciples, he says, be at peace with one another. And I was like, okay, Jesus, what does peace have to do with salt? He tells them, if you have salt within yourself, you will be at peace with one another. This is because a church that embraces a, a, a mentality of smallness is a united church. You know what oftentimes happens in, in great ministries? Everybody wants to start being great, and then like the disciples, they start competing with one another, and then they forget all about the mission. It becomes all about status and who's being seen versus who's being served versus fruit. So this is Jesus tells them, hey, when you, have, when you are small, you can be united and at peace with one another and be united for the mission of God. A mission-minded church is a humble and united church. And so I urge us, Redeemer, you, you, you all have done an awesome job at supporting missionaries and, 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 and sending missionaries, and you all have been an amazing example of a mission-minded church. And I urge you to continue to, to find ways to be prayerful and generous and active in missionary work, particularly in areas that are overlooked because they aren't flashy. They aren't great. I urge us to, to reach out and encourage those who are uniting and embracing and associating with the small, those who are giving it all. And so if you're like me, you might be thinking, man, this is a hard word. This, this is hard to hear because hearing about being small and serving, I don't even know what that looks like. What is, I've, been, I've been trained my whole life to be great. What does it look like to be small? Sounds impossible. And I agree. It is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. And I think it's beautiful that Christ never calls us to something that he hasn't first done himself. Christ knows what it's like to stand, to serve God, and be small. Did you know that Christ was a small person? Christ, though equal with God the Father in power and glory, became small by becoming a human. Christ, though the King of kings and Lord of lords, became small by rejecting the royal city and ministering among everyday folk in northern Palestine. Christ, though the creator of the whole world, became small by pursuing and love a world that did not recognize him. Christ, though the embodiment of cleanliness and purity, became small by touching the disease and the lepers around him. Christ, though righteous and just in every way, became small by eating with the morally scandalous of his day. Christ, though the king of the Jews, became small by conversing with the despised Samaritans and the untouchable Gentiles. Christ, though the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts, became small by allowing an armed little mob to capture his body for you and I. Christ, though judge of all the earth, became small by submitting to unjust court proceedings by unjust earthly judges, who he was judge over anyway. 
Christ, though clothed in the righteousness of God, became small by allowing his enemies to dress him in a crown of thorns and robes of mockery. Christ, though the the one worthy of all honor, became small by allowing his enemies to shamefully hang him naked on a piece of wood. Christ, though the giver of the highest life, became small by dying the lowest death of a slave. Your God knows what it is to be small. And Christ did all of this to serve us. Jesus, in in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus united with and embraced the small by coming for you and I. And so our selfish obsessions with being great deserve the millstone of drowning and the eternal fires of judgment, but Christ himself drowned in the wrath of God and faced the fire of God's fury in your place so that you can have eternal life and an entrance into the kingdom of God. The great one became small so that us great ones might have the power to become small. Christ gives you his pardon and power so that you can actually, we can actually embrace smallness in every area of our lives. Y'all, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We can only become small and give it all for Christ when we realize that Christ became small and has given it all for us. So family, Christ invites you to become great, but he invites you to become great by embracing the small, great by uniting with the small, great by sacrificing for the small, and great by giving it all. Will you stand, serve God, and be small? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time where we can consider your example, consider your life and your ministry. Lord, you knew what it meant to be small. Jesus, your whole life can be described as standing there and serving God and being small. But Lord, we know that wasn't the end of your, of your life. Lord, you are alive. You rose again and you have been given a name that is above every name. That every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth that you, Jesus, are Lord. And so, O exalted King, would you help us to be humble? Lord, we know that you oppose those who exalt themselves. You will humble those who exalt themselves. But we know that just as you are exalted, you will exalt those who are humble. So Jesus, help us to be like children. Help us to be small and lowly and unimportant. Lord, I pray that as we um, consider our time today, that as we think about ways to serve, as we think about ministries to be involved in, as we think about uh, 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 people to serve, that we would have the mentality, there is nothing too low, nothing too unimportant for me to do. Lord, I pray that there would be no holds barred in how we serve you. Lord, help us to be a pleasing aroma, a sacrifice unto you. Help us to have salt among ourselves and and to be at peace with one another. 
Lord, I pray that this happens, and this can only happen, by the power of your Spirit that is always in us, always with us. And Lord, because of that, you and your Father have come to us and made your home with us. And so, Lord, I pray we will live out of that.